I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there. Kofi from North London here. And you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, does anybody remember Oxtails? It was a cartoon on ITV in the early 90s, and I loved it, but no one else seems to remember it. Okay, here comes the show, and remember, question everything. Hello everyone, and welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast where myself, comedian, writer, and occasional actor Dane Baptiste, my producer friend, Howard Cohen, aka The Hizzer. Hello! And a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked, and we are talking everything from... Everything from Kofi from London's question. Does anyone remember the mid-90s cartoon Oxtails? Niche, Kofi. Very niche question. Dane, do you remember that at all? I do not remember any tales involving oxen. I remember ducktails. Ducktails, raccoons. I remember the raccoons. They were very popular. I remember the poor, poor bears. Ewoks, they had their own spin-off in the 90s. So yeah, I can remember yeah. most of the anthropomorphized animal-based ones. Oh, obviously Care Bears. All the bears I've got. Oxtails, I'm not too sure. Oxtails, not so much. So, so no, Kofi. But if any listeners do, feel free to get in contact. And it's, I suppose that question is so niche, it kind of proves uh, that we answer all the questions, don't we, Dan? We answer all the questions genuinely and honestly without the help of Google immediately. And if you like <laughs> please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify where you'll never miss an episode. Or please subscribe to us on Acast, the world's largest podcast network to see all the questions being answered by all of our very special guests and with that being said on today's show is a legendary comedian presenter and writer whose glittering career has shone across three decades of british culture he first rose to prominence through his comedy partnership with rob newman that culminated in the first ever arena comedy show at wembley in 1992 he then conquered television with fellow comedian frank skinner throughout their fantasy football series their live unplanned series and of course the legendary three lions anthem of euro 96 which we all still sing today since then he has enjoyed immense success as an author of children's books has performed olivier nominated live shows and even finds time to present thought-provoking documentaries as well as be a very good son and take care of his dad too we are immensely proud to welcome to the show the inspirational and legendary figure of david Badil. hello hello dane hello howard what was your what was your nickname howard uh Hizza, which is reference to uh, a a, a uh, wu-tang uh guy oh called, uh, the rizza yeah. so that's and the jizza the rizza yeah. and man's the mizza hello so uh well it's lovely to lovely to be with you both uh i was listening to to your question before and I am older than both of you. I don't know if that's obvious. Uh, and uh, the three decades thing probably made it quite obvious. And I don't remember most of those ones, but I do remember the Hair Bear Bunch. Can I query whether Gummy Bears was an actual cartoon or just a sweet? It was both. So it's it a both. sweet, but it's also a, it's a Disney cartoon about a bunch of bears who take a uh, equivalent of Monster or Red Bull and it gets them going mental, and there's gummy bears <laughs> bouncing here and there and everywhere. And it's like a special right. gummy juice, but I imagine it's just a very high fructose kind of uh, quasi hallucinogenic potion that they all enjoy. Because then they start bouncing on their tails and just mauling and 
Blimey, the nineties, because I, I suspect now that might have some issues with parents. Yeah, but it's, I feel like nowadays, luckily for kids, parents don't give a fuck about raising them. So, if, right. so if if gummy bears appears on your iPad, you're good to go. You're good to go. Yeah. Okay. There were loads of bears when I was a kid, but there was also really weird cartoons. Like I don't know. I don't want to get all uh, oh with the seventies and blah 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 blah. But do, does wacky races does that mean anything to you? Oh yeah. Really, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Definitely no wacky races and uh, Dick Dastardly and Muttley. Yeah. Okay. So these things these things cross all sorts of time barriers. Yeah. They about there. They've been going for years and years. So they still they still bring the stuff back. I mean, Scooby Doo. Don't you think that, that, that everyone always referenced the magic roundabout, right, as the weird one? Yeah. Because that's clearly so drug-influenced. But they're all weird. They're all well, really magic weird. roundabout's particularly weird, actually. One of the things I tend to say when I started writing kids' books, which you mentioned, one thing I tried to do was be as funny as I could be in normal life, uh, in normal <laughs> comedy, but... I didn't think, oh, it's kids, so I've got to talk down to children because it, they're children. And, and there's a reason for that, which is I think, and it's my own experience with having kids, that children are much funnier than they used to be mm. when I was the same age. Yeah. And I, I'll tell you why. I grew up, and this is why I thought of it, on the, like, the magic roundabout, right, which was not at all funny and just a bit weird. My son and my daughter, they've grown up on The Simpsons, right? Yeah. And, you know, uh, Amazing World of Gumball. I don't know if you ever watched that. It's a oh, brilliant, it's fantastic show. One of my favourite shows. Yeah, it's so funny. It. It's so it's really, hilarious. And regular yeah. show. Regular shows and amazing in the show. Regular show. Incredible. I mean, these things are as funny as anything on TV. I mean, they're not yeah. just funny for kids. They're really funny. funny. So Absolutely. So both my children, I would say, reared on proper comedy rather than weird shit like The Magic Roundabout were proper funny by the ages of about nine, you know, at a time when I wouldn't have known what a joke was, let alone irony or anything like that. So <laughs> when, I, when I started writing kids' books, I, I didn't, apart from missing out sex and swearing and whatever, I tried to make them as funny as anything else, and that served me pretty well, I think. I think kids pick up, they notice the obvious, so they tend to pick up on, yeah. on jokes pretty well. I, um, I think I honed a lot of my comedy when I was younger as well, and like I said, it's especially with things like The Simpsons, because they work on so many levels for a kid at the time. It was just animation that was slightly edgy for me was amazing. But then mm. now understanding a lot of the subtext of the jokes and the satire in, in The Simpsons, again, renews its appeal. And I think that's why shows like uh, The Amazing Adventures of Gumball and Regular Show work is because kids can enjoy them on one level, whereas as adults, you can enjoy a lot of the subtext on another level as well. Because And it's always, I've always found it quite weird when people be like, well, how can you watch a cartoon if you're like an adult? I'm like, well, kids don't write these. Yeah, but I also think, like, as kids have got more sophisticated comically, adults have got more childish. Massive. Like, I'm a much more childish adult than adults were when I was a kid, right? <laughs> In what respects? What proves that? Well, one thing, I, when, I, when I do little readings for kids, right, I go to school to do little readings for kids for my books, and I, I sometimes tell them something. I say, right, like, all these people around you, the adults and the teachers and your and your parents, whatever, I'll let you into a secret. Inside, they feel about 12. They look, whatever, 40 or 50, but inside they feel about 12, and everyone does. And then I, I do a joke, which is really just for the adults in the room, which is say there's one person in the world who is actually the age that he actually is, and he's called Michael Goat. Michael Goat did not have a childhood of a conventional sense. That's that's very clear. I think politicians are probably the exception to that rule that they're aware of yeah. the child. I think those are the people that... Uh, Something died in their childhood that meant they became politicians. Although sometimes with, like, Rhys Mogg, 
people like that, you can at, the, at one time you think, well, yeah, he's all this kind of grown up person. At the other time, you can see the nine year old in him, can't you? Oh, you can definitely see the nine year old. That's somebody who's never been reprimanded for anything they've done or said their entire life. So, anyway, I think that kids are, well, I think everyone is a kid inside, apart from one or two people like politicians, as you say. Uh, and I think that there's that cartoons have sort of made that clearer as time goes on. Like, I don't know if you watch BoJack Horseman, which ah, is an adult yeah. cartoon. It's an adult cartoon, right? Although I was introduced to it by my son, mm-hmm. who's 15 and who has been, like, brilliant with introducing me to funny, proper animations yeah. since he was about 12. But I think that's... I think probably it's the best programme that's been on telly in the last three or four years, mm-hmm. BoJack Horseman. Definitely. I, I, think. I would say equal only to maybe Archer. But in the last, yeah, well, Archer's also brilliant. But last, the last also, three or four years, I'd definitely say, yeah, BoJack Horseman is something that I definitely used to binge watch. And the fact that they got away with that level of such in-depth and accurate satire of yeah. the entertainment industry. You know, there's so and there are so many archetypes which we all recognise, and I'm sure a lot of the people who they are kind of uh, doing an homage or a composite of in the characters in BoJack Horseman. Because for me, I was like, I thought it was about Bob Saget and him being on like Full, um, full House, but it was done so well. There's so many elements, but... Uh, yeah, animation gives you so much more animation and children's books and having that broader creativity gives you so much more artistic license when adults nowadays are like, I don't like this. It doesn't, it affects me. I don't like this demographic. We're pandering and all these other words people use to try and add intellectualism to them behaving like 12 year olds. So it is time probably for a question, Absolutely. isn't it, Dane? I and uh, you, know, you are probably one of our more esteemed guests, comedy wise for sure, uh, David. Um, so we want to do a special whereby we want to offer the opportunities for you to ask a question which we can expand on for the entire episode. So, so my question is, and it's very much a self-interested question, uh, and I don't know, uh, you will feel the same, Dane, which is we're, we're in a difficult period for comedy yes. at the moment. Live comedy has basically been shut down and uh, quite a lot of comedy on telly you know, has had to change because you can't get audiences in there either and all the rest of it. Uh, I, I was doing a tour. I'm going to get to the question. This is build-up, right? Uh, I was doing it. have build-up. That's fine. Okay, so I was on tour when lockdown happened, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd done 30 dates. Uh, the tour was the rest of the UK and then Australia and New Zealand I was going to do. Uh, and as it started to get worse and worse, I was playing these sold-out venues, but people weren't turning yeah. up. Now, that might be because they'd heard it was shit. But I think it was because they were frightened of dying, right? I, I'm normally frightened of dying on stage, yeah. but the audience are frightened of dying. So uh, my question is, essentially, what is the future of comedy? What's going to happen to comedy, uh, it, you know, with the situation we're in now? And so that, that's partly about where we are now. And I suppose also a larger question about how with online stuff, with online being how it is, being very hard on comedy sometimes, very monitoring of comedy, but also just like half the jokes I do now, particularly because I can't perform, are on Twitter. I just think I think of a joke, oh, fuck it, I'll put it on Twitter. Yeah. So anyway, so I'm asking, is that the future of comedy? What is the future of comedy? And I brought that up with animation because actually I'm thinking about writing an animation because it's one of the very few things that I think, well, that'll probably get made if I can make it any good. Mm-hmm. Whereas a sitcom now... Or a live show, even might not might just might not happen. Yeah. So that's my question. What's the future of comedy? It's, no, it's it's a good question, and it's the one on the lips of all of my contemporaries at the moment. Um, I think the overarching answer for me is that it will endure. Uh, it still exists, and you know, I, I feel like art will always find a way. But um, as I say, I, I don't think I don't think we're going to see a mass a, a decline or the erasure of live performance in terms of stand up necessarily. 
But maybe yeah, the uh, structure in which we are able to observe it may have to change. So I myself have done a few of the uh, gigs in like fields where I've basically went down to Berkshire and they had a whole field next to like, you know, like a maritime area. And like, what was that like? It looked fucking terrible. Fucking terrible. It looked <laughs> terrible. It was myself, Susie Ruffle has been on the podcast as well. And, um, I saw, and Al and we were, Al Cruttenden, and we were like, this looks terrible. We, yeah. we who are about to die salute the crowd like the gladiators we are. So yeah. we went out there expecting to die, but it was fine. It was, it was fine. I think it's, it's we, as hard as things are, there's almost a nice little sweet spot whereby if you can meet with that demand from that true comedy patron who still just wants to see live performance and whatever vehicle they literally need in order to realize that and meet with someone who wants to perform, then it can still work to an extent. So as terrible as it looked, it kind of manifested as being very similar to performing at a festival. So we had like a jumbotron behind us. And even though you audibly hear all the laughs from all the audience members, the first couple of rows, it was audible enough that could give you a sense of atmosphere. And instead of an applause break, you get the horns beeping and lights flashing, which was a surreal experience initially. But um, yeah, it kind of worked. Did it feel good to hear that or not? Did it? Yeah, was it I mean, positive yeah, you just, to hear that? I mean, I guess validation is a big drive when you're performing live and it just replaced one replaced the other. So uh, I guess you can tell if it's a good horn, but they seemed happy. But, I mean, that I haven't done that. I've been asked to do a couple and I'll be honest with you. I was too frightened. I understand, I understand the fear. I understand the fear because it looks like, am I supposed to be like the girl that referees like a drag race? How am I standing in front of all of these yeah. cars? And it just, the practicality of it looked terrible, but having it executed, I think it's just comedy. When you strip away all of these kind of elements, I think it's down to if people have an open mind and ears and want to laugh and they can hear what you have to say and they can hear you, then, you know, as rudimentary as the paradigm of being in an open mic club at the back of a pub is, it's not that far off. So I think when right. I hear that badly, because I, I was definitely the same. In the same way, like Zoom calls have become a lot more prevalent now following lockdown. And again, it was the idea of not only performing to myself down a barrel, but also performing to like gormless kind of audience members who within the comfort of their own homes, obviously are able to turn over conversation and be like, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know what, when you get, just get, I'm hungry. So it's yeah. just learning to bother that kind of, is kind of manage that kind of thing. But, um, it's good to hear that, right? Because I have been asked to do a few of them and I've thought, because I and all comedians, I think, uh, although obviously we've had to tailor our cloth with the situation, but all comedians are bothered about the room. Okay. So if I go into a space and I think I can think, Oh, the ceiling is the wrong height for laughs. Do you know what I mean? Or the or the audience is just slightly too spaced out, or I don't like a room that's too it's wide. It's a chemical reaction. It's, 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 it's as if you are trying to perform an experiment or a reaction, you need a controlled environment for that to happen. And this is something, this is yeah. an element of what we do as comics that people don't understand, is that when they just flippantly say, tell us a joke, it's like the context of which... How, how do I pick a joke that could be told in context? Because if let's say we meet your friend and the guy's like, well, this is my mate, David, he's a comedian. Go on, David, do a joke. And you do a joke about someone's mother. Yeah. This guy has buried his mother today. Now you're the villain mm. of this discourse, even yeah. though, well, that was a joke. You asked for a joke. You didn't specify what type of context or to consider, you know, the tragedy of someone's family. It's not as straightforward as that. It requires, you know, like I said, an environment for it to work. Acoustics, being able to hear your audience or see them in a certain way, having an organic way you get like a, you know, you get... Feedback immediately in terms of how well you're performing as a comic. This is kind of what lockdown has deprived us of. And David, do you miss it? Do you, do you, you feeling wanting to go back out there? 
Well, I've been asked to do, I, I, I don't know if I should mention this because it hasn't been announced yet. And actually, I don't know if I am going to do it. But I've been asked to do, because I was doing this show, right? Trolls, Not the Dolls. It's a show about, uh, it's my third show. Because I, I really start, I stopped doing stand-up quite a long time. And then in 2013, I went back to it, but in a slightly different way. I started doing these shows that were uh, kind of just about one subject and storytelling-led, and I used a screen. Uh, and, you know, I think they were still stand up totally because there was a lot of laughter but they were sort of like took you from one place to the other and actually i deliberately like thought actually here's something funny that might but isn't it isn't what this show's about so i'm not going to do that so it felt like you know that was the kind of show i was trying to do and the last the most recent one has been about um yeah online hate or whatever and i've been asked to do that for a week in the west end right and in november and i it's like Okay, that'd be great, except obviously it's half full audiences at best. We can't sell more than half tickets. They'll have to wear masks and they have to sit apart. Okay, so obviously I understand all that. But at the same time, I'm just, you know, I'm straightforwardly thinking that would normally mean if that if I woke up from a coma and walked out on stage and the audience looked like that, I'd just be thinking, well, this is going to die. This is going to go really badly. Look at them. They're all wearing, why are they wearing masks? And what's more, it's half full, right? So that's not the conditions you normally like to play in. I think of comedy as a packed room and, you know, people are open mouthed, laughing. It's so weird how it specifically mitigates against comedy of all art forms. So anyway, uh, I I do want to do it. Yeah. I mean, apart from anything, I've worked on that show for two years. And I only got to perform it 30 times. But the thing the thing might be as well, now is that the kind of comedy that you're talking about is very much this kind of, I always kind of think of it as Edinburgh or theatre kind of performance comedy where someone's going to see a show, right? Yeah. And, and that's so uh, likely to survive in these coming years, uh, un- unlike the club scene. Well, that's worse. Which worse. Is, is, a, is getting battered, isn't it? If you are an aspiring comedian, where would you begin now? That which is, you know, adding to the question, which I think is very difficult. So, yeah, it's it's been hard to make any adjustment from trying to do Zoom calls and then trying to, and and also doing the live gigs because especially there is a limited amount of spaces for comedians as there always is. And and my time, even my time throughout the last decade has been, you know, there's not been a time when I've been like, there's not enough comedians at gigs. It's always been massively saturated. So, Dane, can I ask you something? How, how did you start? Uh, I started, the first time I did a gig was in 2006, and uh, basically a guy called Kojo Anim used to run a comedy night in uh, on Binney Street, which is like in just off Oxford Circus, and yeah, I used to go there with a, fr- I went there with a friend, he told me about it, it was really fun, and he said, oh, my friend Dane's really funny, he's into comedy, he's a real fan, so I was always a fan, but just, yeah, I suppose at 15 I decided I wanted to become a comedian, but I had no idea on how to pursue it, so I became a closet comedian, slash class clown for most of my life, and after graduating and yeah, 2006, my friend was like, you know, Dane's really funny. He likes comedy. And Kojo was like, well, he can have five minutes on stage if he does write the material in two weeks' time. So that was my first foray into comedy, performing in predominantly black rooms on what's referred to as the black circuit for a few gigs here and there. And he just kind of re- arrived at a plateau very quickly. So I went back to work and then started comedy again in earnest in 2010 after doing the creative writing at the London Germanism just to, right. because I felt like at that point it was like I enjoyed comedy I was able to wing it I'd done gigs here and there made my friends laugh but then you do this whole process of procrastination when you actually want to do something and you would be like I'm just researching which is yeah. it's really procrastination and the yeah. commonality amongst a lot of yeah. people I looked up to was the fact that like uh, Dave Chappelle had gone to the Duke of, Duke Ellington's uh, School of Arts and then Russell Brand had gone to Italia Conti and 
it just seemed that a lot of guys, rather than just winging it, had actually trained in, on the actual art form itself. So I spent some time doing the uh, creative writing, studying improv, studying clown, and then did a comedy uh, course at uh, the London Comedy School. Really? I've never heard of that. London, there's yeah, a London it's in Camden. And, and that's, I did, I did, they do improv classes, they do comedy writing workshops, they have guests in. Like I remember going there and meeting Kevin Hart, and Kevin Hart basically stopped by and did a talk there as well. Yeah, so you get like Joe Brand yeah. works there quite a Phil Jupiter is there quite a bit as well. So Andy Osho is a patron. So guys would just show up and you'd get like the odd someone coming in and having a Q&A. And it was all quite casual. And then it yeah, became very focused on helping us to develop the idea of stagecraft and how to best use your time at open mic. And Was there a moment when you, because if you're procrastinating and doing another job or whatever, was there a gig where you thought, right, uh, this is it. This, I'm doing this. This is this mm, is my living. That's a good question. I would say, well, I, there was definitely a period in Dane's life that I think a lot of people uh, became aware of as a, as a huge uh, moment, which was his, his his Edinburgh show, the first Edinburgh Before show. That, I think I still had that thing, but I, but I think yeah, industrially, how how um, um, how it is right because that's when I kind of was like, yeah, now it's you, you're an, you're an actual bona fide comic. But I think for me the my head, the switch went off was when I was 15 and saw Bigger and Blacker with Chris Rock. That for me, that was like, right. this is it. Because it was like, it was, and I think it was also because it was, I grew up in an environment where for most young straight black men, the outlet creatively was like music. And I enjoyed it, but I yeah. knew it wasn't what I wanted to do. And there was also a certain level of credential you needed to be considered a credible musician or credible artist. And I was like, right. that's not been my life either. So I couldn't go on and lie about who I was. Whereas with comedy, it was kind of seemed a bit more inclusive um, in terms of the nuanced background that Chris Rock had. It seemed a lot more similar to mine. And I really like the idea, yeah. especially where, you know, all of the racial tensions, which people think are very conspicuous now, but were always around when I grew up. And I always felt like for all uh, art genres, this is the one that actually gives you a platform where you can, you know, talk about how you feel. You don't have to play it down you don't have to hide your uh you don't have to hide your angst or your uh, disillusionment in a song and make it catchy you don't have to make a very uh i guess a very diluted or very uh corporate statement on behalf of your football team and be diplomatic for the sake of being like i'm just gonna play my football like comedians would speak about taboo issues and they wouldn't they wouldn't pull punch when they did it and i love that idea for me it's it's a lot to do with being the art form where you can be who you mm-hmm. are and exactly. that's your job, which is, I mean, not everyone is that with comedy. Obviously there are lots of character comedians. There are also quite a lot of comedians who pretend yeah. to be one person Absolutely. and they're very different. I can't do any of that. I can't do that. I'm a very limited performer, but I'm good at being myself on stage. When was your first gig? That's kind of just here. We heard Dane's story. I'd love to know yours. Well, I had a specific experience, which wasn't a professional one, but it was what made me decide to be a comic, which was uh, at my school, there was a like a cabaret show that the six formers would put on. And every year it was shit. It was really shit. And would get booed <laughs> off. Uh, it was on at lunchtime. It was fucking terrible. And I got asked to write it. And I don't really know why, because I wasn't like known for being funny or whatever at school but I was I suppose people I I was already writing stuff and so I got asked to write it and I as ever I always turn I think I try and think like what really matters to me in my life at any point in time 
And at that point in time, when I was 17 or 18 or wherever I was, I was really fucked off about particular teachers at that school who I thought were cunts. And there were quite a lot of them. So I wrote a series of sketches <laughs> viciously taking the piss out of very specific <laughs> teachers. For example, there was a Christian librarian who was very, very horrible and all his Christianity was a lie because he was just really nasty to all the kids and whatever, everyone hated him. But he always got away with it because of this Christian thing or whatever. So he used to have a librarian, a female librarian who worked with him. And in the sketch, I can't remember the, for the premise, but in the sketch, we had a blow-up doll, a naked blow-up doll that he was having sex with on the photocopier <laughs> in the library, right? And it, it stormed it. I mean, unbelievably stormed it. I'd never been on stage before. And I'm doing that. I was the librarian, and uh, I'm doing that. Is storming it, and a few and other things like you know, we had this teacher who used to come on and tell us to sing hymns, which I didn't like anyway because I'm Jewish. He used to come on and shout at the at the room at the assembly if we weren't <laughs> singing them properly. So I did that, but instead of just saying "come on, sing up," I would say "fucking sing up, you." So here's the true story. I. It was taken off. It was meant to be on for a week at my school. It was taken off immediately. Got one performance. I nearly got expelled, but I got away with it. Just, I'll tell you why, because I was clever. So I was clever. I was going to Cambridge. And as a result, the head teacher just said to me, you should be expelled for this. But because you're going to Cambridge, and essentially because we like to have league tables where we're doing quite well yeah. in them, we're not going to expel you because then you won't be able to go to Cambridge. So I got away with it. And I was cool. <laughs> I was cool at school for the first time ever. And I remember thinking, this is good. I remember having that moment as well from a school assembly where I kind of had done a, being a uh, eco-warrior that spoke in Patois and being very concerned about the state of recycling in my residential area and absolutely smashing it. Okay. And, and, yeah. and being able to have that power where teachers <laughs> were able to suppress me talking. And, you know, because I mean, normally yeah. in this course with teachers, if you, they spoke about a historical point, and I'd be like, well, that's not the version I get at home. And this has obviously been very much diluted or homogenized for the sake of curriculum. And normally they'd be able to shut you down. But with comedy, it's just so effective. And in the same way that, like, when you're navigating adolescence and this life in general, and like I said, I dealt with a lot of problems from authoritarians in school, ridicule is 10 times more effective than violence. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Violence doesn't solve yeah. I mean, people say violence that's doesn't solve anything, but that's normally from people who live in countries with massive defence budgets. But I think that uh, you can hit somebody and the bruise can heal. But if you make up a stupid name for somebody that everyone can say as well, it's very hard for them to get rid of that. 
Oh man, Howard the coward still uh, still hurts me to this day. Really, or Howard the duck actually Isn't was bad that just enough. Because it rhymes. Are you actually? Yeah. Well, I probably became a coward <laughs> because of being called it. But the question, the question I wanted to ask you guys off the back of this point is 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 whether this generation coming up now, we've got a couple of years where obviously the comedy industry is going to be hit. David, is, is is this going to mean that, you know, those people with stories like both you and Dane have just said are, are going to not be able to act upon it? I, I don't know, but I, without wishing to sound like the grand old man of comedy, uh, I do worry about that, about younger people coming through now and how they're going to find a way of doing it because at the club level, it's yeah. completely screwed at the moment, it seems to me. Um, and... Also, I, I don't, it's kind of hard to know what people talk about yeah. as well because it's such a, you know, our generation, well, by which I mean my generation, right? But I mean, I guess you, you no. know, you're not that young either of you. But, <laughs> yeah. but basically, you know, the war was the thing that happened that was like a massive thing, and then since then, there's been a lot of bad shit, but nothing quite like this. Nothing quite like a global thing that affects everyone that we've all got to deal with and. It's never occurred to me before what I'm going to say, but maybe it's right. Does it also mean it, it like means what else, else are we going to talk about? I mean, obviously there are other things to talk about within the context of it, but it's quite hard to like, like even when I go back on stage now, I've got this whole show about online hate, which I think is a very, you know, big and important and worth talking about subject. But I'm going to have to do 10 minutes yeah. about coronavirus before I can get into it. <laughs> you know, yeah. do you know what I mean? So... Uh, I don't know what it's done to the conversation, yeah. the comic I conversation. I personally think, I mean, like I said, for the successive generation after me of comedians, I think, I mean, and this is pending how our just infrastructure and society functions in the next couple of years anyway, rather than with these performing artists. But I think, at least narratively, they have the basis to create a whole new narrative of our experience. Like, it's almost starting at zero because, mm. like I said, we... The whole COVID and coronavirus has been a shared experience. The pandemic has been a shared experience. So that's a basis where most people can be like, here's where I was when the coronavirus hit, you know, and find that mutuality. Then after that, I think if we look at corona and how it's kind of overtaken a lot of the other number of ideological and social change that we're seeing, whether it's, uh, you know, the rise of fascism in Western Europe and, you know, and, and, and or, or neo-fascism in, in Western Europe and the resultant humanitarian protests from Black Lives Matter, a result of that, and the assertion of black rights in the West, particularly in the States. Well, the entire thing is, is swamped with the impact of social media on our civilization as a whole. That's, you know. Well, so we're not short of topics in terms of, like, taboo topics to discuss. I think around them, among the time now where I suppose the rights of people and the uh, assertion of which is taking place both uh, socially but also digitally is a big point as well because I, I've noticed mm. with a lot of successive generations of comedians, they now tend to contextualise themselves along these lines of not just, uh, you know, ethnicity and nationality but also sexuality or sexual orientation and how, you know, and, and even this, mm. and even now you can tell the age of somebody when they uh, refer to the pronouns used to address them on their social media. So there's a whole new level of awareness mm. in terms of like certain uh, more binary aspects of our narratives, like when we used to discuss the difference between men and women. When you're seeing the emergence now of people that, you know, uh, like to classify themselves as non-binary or gender fluid, it means the dynamic of that is going to change as well. And there's, and there's going to be nuances to those experiences mm. as well. So I think there's quite a new world yeah. and there's a lot of new nomenclature that people have to get used to. I think one thing that does worry me about that and is like, 
it's with Twitter being the yeah. power it is now. I think that, and, and as you said, with so many different forms of identity emerging now, that you yeah. can get wrong. Absolutely. It's easy enough to get, you know, you, because they're new, yeah. apart from anything. So it take a while to get them under your belt, even if you are a caring, sensitive Which is fine, and I think, I think as long as you contextualise it along those lines, there shouldn't be a problem, because I feel like the issue is, like you said, you're like, there's, you're going to get them wrong, and, you're not gonna, and they're all new, and there's new ones going to learn every day. Myself as a comic, if I perform to potential, yeah. like, potentially like university students, there is that minefield where I might step on and use incorrect nomenclature or just in my address or something that might seem well-intentioned, might be offensive to somebody. I'm always open as a comic why we have the privilege of both being able to be social commentator, but also take the status of fool. And I can tell you that where if I don't know, yeah. I'm open to make a joke about the fact that I don't know. And that should be part of my, I believe, part of right. my creative journey where it's like, I am now a man getting closer to my 40s and work and learning how the world works. And, you know, when I was a kid, oh, my God, we had page three. Now you have an OnlyFans where potentially, you know, people are taking autonomy over being able to commodify their own sexuality. So I look at it in terms right. of that way. So I feel like for the younger generations, I think they still have a wealth of material they can draw from. And I think in the same way that it would have been for ourselves, it's, they'll, the wheat and the chaff will be separated. People that have more of a hack approach or hackneyed approach to certain topics will be less likely to be, you know, indulged by audiences, whether it's online or in real life. When I was starting out, and for a long time, you know, you you didn't have to worry as much, obviously, that if you did get it wrong, in public particularly, that you're going to get a huge backdraft of people, you know, giving you a really hard time about it and trolling you whatever on, on Twitter. And al although I agree, I completely actually agree that uh, there's been a sort of, you know, mass social usefulness to social media being able to create movements, particularly to marginalised voices that weren't able to, you know, speak back to power for a long time. I think that's yeah. been incredibly important. I also think there is another effect which is complicated mm. for comedians, which is can you write freely? Can you speak? Can you say something without... I don't mean... I'm not being a free speecher here. I'm saying something else. I'm saying what is yeah, the creative absolutely. effect of coming out with something and hearing first, second-guessing, what's going to be the reaction to this on social media. Yeah, well, I, I do think it's interesting as well that, that, that because we used to watch something and then talk about it to our immediate circle, um, it, ha it had such limited impact on our, on our world, right? So, for example, Dane went on uh, a very lovely uh, show run by Frankie Boyle on the BBC, and um, to say there has been a fucking, you know, drama associated with that show, um, which, which, let's yeah. be honest, that show's on its fourth series, yeah. third, at least third or fourth series, and it's very naturally offensive because, guess what? Frankie Boyle's having a TV show, so it's going to be. But the response now to that clip that has happened with uh, uh, Sophie Duker, who we, we love, uh, you know, on this show, I think it's a wonderful, you know, talent, is, um, is almost a sign of the times. Are we hampered artistically now that we're aware? And I think my advice I'd want to give to artists and people in general is that you're not necessarily hampered. It, it's, uh, it's like, first of all, social media and how we, our conduct on it, through the, it's very hard to look through through the lens of capitalism because things are skewed very often for monetary gain. But, but it's fascinating to have, you know, David's take on <laughs> how things have changed. Because obviously, you know, uh, me and Dane will yeah. remember the Mary Whitehouse experience as a, as what, what was one of the most anarchic things on our television in that era. And I mean, how many complaints did you guys get, David? A lot. And I've had lots of stuff. 
over the years that where she've got massive problems and complaints. Most re- I did a show uh, on the radio called Don't Make Me Laugh, um, which got taken off after the mail basically <laughs> oh closed it down. What happened with that? What happened with that was it's a show where uh, comedians have to uh, try and speak for as long as they can without making the audience laugh. That's the premise of the show. And I always gave them, I was the chair, always gave them the most childish subjects that they can, that I can think of, uh, in order to start the audience laughing to begin with, right? So there was a subject which was, uh, there was always a serious voice that would say there is nothing funny about and it was there is nothing funny about the fact that her majesty the queen must have had sex at least four times that going all right and then russell kane made some comment about every time this is what he said every time we see a new head emerge from her majesty's labia it makes you want to be more of a republican right that was that was the line so get this get this okay so this is second series, it, it, the first series went out at 11.30 because it was a very rude show. They, it was successful. It was really funny. They put it out at 6.30, the second series, on Radio 4. And first series, a first programme in that series, uh, there was something about there is nothing funny about the fact that there is a bloke at the BBC who has to cut the DJs, the, the pedo DJs, out of every episode <laughs> of Top of the Pops on BBC4, right? And they got so worried about that, they didn't even think about this Queen one, which was in the second episode, which went out on the day of the Queen's 90th birthday. Oh, man. It went out on the Queen's 90th birthday. (laughs) Radio 4 had more complaints than they've ever had. The male called me a vile whatever. There's a lot of racist. This Marxist comedian. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Cultural Marxist, ruthless cosmopolitan, likes herring, comedian. Right done this horrible thing to our queen anyway i really i actually i refuse to apologize for it because a it was funny b it's a show about you know comedians trying not to be funny so they're obviously saying all these things and c it's not even fucking rude it's only rude if you either sexualize the queen or you're ageist because i had a very similar joke in a show my my last show the gold oil and drugs when i made a reference to the queen performing fellatio on prince philip now, people, some people are upset right. about this, but I'm like, well, then by your own admission, you are internalized sexist because you see a woman performing a sex act yeah. as something degrading, even within a of your own marriage. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah, you know what? That not only that's absolutely the same thing because I think what what upset them there? What actually upset them when you look at it? It can't be that she gave birth, right? Because that is what the Absolutely. royal family are meant to do. Apart from anything, they've got Absolutely. to give birth to keep the line going, right? So it's just the idea of Her Majesty's vagina. So what you're saying there is we have to create a. It's somehow or other uh, degrading, demeaning. To a woman, yeah, to exactly remind that. you that she's a and, woman. And exactly that, and and this is how you're always able to subvert it. And and then, so my advice to to um to most uh comics, if you feel hampered by the zeitgeist of today, is to not think about it. Like these things only have the power you give them and the kind of credence. And I try to explain to people like if all of us are now enabled to have a stream to reveal our stream of consciousness by the merit of social media, then Twitter is basically a sewer. And a reservoir. So there'll be a stream of stuff that you might enjoy, but there's a sewer there of this mm. absolute mind farts that are precipitating into shit at sludge about in this consciousness online. And really, if you were to take tweets written by trolls 
and you were to juxtapose them with the scrawlings that you find in a public bathroom, you wouldn't be able to make a distinction. They're equally offensive, disgusting, mm. racist, crude. But when you see it on a toilet door, you wouldn't give it the time of day. When you see it on a school desk, like if you see someone puts a SWAT sticker on a bench at a bus stop, you're just like, who even had this time to do this with their lives? Your, your, your first feeling will, yeah. will initially be pity. Yeah. Like, it is December. Who had the fucking time to do this? But we we just give we give social media and bec- and that's because of the fact that social media is still such a vast untapped unregulated landscape for commercial purposes we give it so much mm. credence that it doesn't really need it doesn't make a difference for me i do it because i'll write stuff that i know will be challenged on or i'll be attacked on but it's like who are you you this if you are someone who has chosen a crusader as your avatar I am not afraid of what you think about me. Now, it only becomes an issue a lot of the time if it gets to the point whereby this galvanization of detractors are able to influence corporate interests or stakeholders. If they can't make it happen, so in the case of people calling Mm. to the BBC, because the BBC at the time, in your case, would have obviously is beholden to taxpayers, they have to respond to stuff like that. But I can tell you for free, if you were on a privately owned station or platform that generated income, everyone would be like, I don't give a fuck what you guys think, fuck off. And also sometimes I want people to understand is that Comedy and uh, for me the value of it, as I said, because of the elements of social commentary and you know how much you're able to be capable of satire and be that crude about it is this is a very honest form of politics. There's a lot going on there. I mean, one of the things in my show, in the Trolls show, I talk a lot about uh, what I think is going on with that. Um, I talk about how uh, I, outrage confirms identity, which I think is a really important thing. So I think for a lot of people, what's happened with social media is. I think people in general, and this is on right and left, I think are very keen a lot of the time to want to be able to fix who they are. And one way of doing that is by turning up the volume on who they are. So sometimes I've said something which is completely just a joke, innocuous or whatever, and I'll get these massive outrage reactions to it. And then I realise, okay, you've just seen that as a way in, a catalyst to be able to say who you are. So you found a way of that being like anti-feminist or whatever it might be. It isn't, but you found a way of it because really what you want to do is just shout, I'm a feminist or whatever, and the joke's a way into doing that. And that might be from any part of the spectrum. Um, And I also, uh, I talk a bit how, for me, they're hecklers. The collective consciousness on social media is a teenager because that's how long we've had it as a phenomenon for. By that token, adolescence normally is characterised or typified by us engaging in our deepest parts of identity politics. When you're in primary school, you don't really give a shit who you are, where the sweets are coming from, that's all I want to know. When you're in adolescence now and you're starting to deal with your identity, then it's like, okay, I'm struggling now because I'm way more aware of my sexuality, so what is my sexual orientation? I'm now aware of, you know, my social economic background, and does this this dictate who I hang around in with in school? So when you're in adolescence and you don't have the wisdom of experience or not giving a shit what people think, when you're in school, this is when you start forming what we refer to online as echo chambers. And it also means because we're adolescents and we are teenagers, we're very sensitive about how people try to designate us. And we're very sensitive to any kind of speech. So as we're discovering our consciousness on social media, so for example, when someone says something like you make an right. innocuous statement, they have to be like, well, I, I want to be a feminist and I don't want to be one of the guys that likes this and blocks. So then now they people have this weird obligation now in this paradigm where like they feel they have to say something to you, a virtue signal or be involved. And then even, like, just like with a teenager, yeah. if you have a daughter and your daughter is of a certain age and you go, it's kind of cold outside, uh, maybe you should take a jacket. Why are you treating me like I'm a whore, dad? How do we get here? Well, that's why initially, I mean, I've now stopped doing it because I now have got too many followers and tend to generate too many trolls. But when I first started it, 
I didn't do the don't feed the trolls thing because I just thought, oh, someone who I don't know is abusing me. I'm a comedian. I'm going to respond to that in a funny way. And that was what I did throughout. And in fact, in my show, one of the things I try and say as sort of advice, if you're going to deal with trolls, is here's the key thing. Don't get angry. Don't get like upset because that's not what a comedian does when a heckler happens. Then the the heckler's won. What you do, if anything, is use an improvisation technique of yes and. So you know about yes and because you've done improvisation. Basically, you build on what they've said and you take them down in so doing, right? So, like, I mean, actually, to use an example of a, a brilliant heckle response by Frank Skinner, which I remember was the first time I ever saw Frank Skinner. Uh, Frank's uh, got an incredible ability with hecklers because his brain is so quick, with, particularly with put-downs. Uh, uh, he was at the comedy store, and I was watching him thinking, oh, yeah, this bloke's interesting. And then a drunk medical student shouted at him out of nothing just because he was drunk. He said, oh, I remember you from medical school. And Frank said, oh, yeah, you were the one in the jar, right? <laughs> what I love about that, apart from it being brilliantly yeah. quick, is that's what I mean by yes and. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, he doesn't say no what you're talking yeah, about because that leads nowhere comically. And I try and do that online as well. But can I just say one other thing, which I think is really important, which I do talk about in that show as well, which is you said that thing about graffiti on a, on a bus station, right? That's true. But I think there's a difference, which is... We are now in a time where people write down their opinions in a public yes, space absolutely. like they've never done before. And a lot of these people have never written anything before. Anything. And they've never put their hand up in class. And you can tell because it's the, I'm entitled to my yeah. opinion because it's that move away from fact and being able to. And, and that's the. And, and like I said, it's, this is, we are now observing actual democracy. Because what people need to understand, I think, was in within our normal lives, we probably had a state of time, okay, which may, may have been relatively chaotic, where people could say and do what they want in a public forum. And, you know, we see them in, like, these kind of quasi-medieval recreations of, like, you know, uh, witch trials and the like, where everyone was able to express their opinion. What I think happened then is that because, like I said, this ubiquitousness of opinions that don't go anywhere, have no factual or scientific uh, basis, this is why we have uh, the phenomenon of aristocracy in our society where very clearly a bunch of people had to come together and be like mm. not everyone has the intellect or wherewithal to express their feelings properly or to and not everyone has this, the benevolent intent to pine for something that's going to benefit society as a whole so what we need to have are representatives from each of these constituencies to speak on behalf of those people and take their general needs into one and speak about it and i think that's kind of right that was an old, like old yeah. aspect of humanity where we're like, not everyone can have a say. So we need someone that can speak on their behalf. And that's why we have the political systems we have. Yeah. Whereas it's the Wild West on social media where, like I said, everyone can volunteer a public opinion that doesn't make any sense, has no factual basis. They yeah. can barely spell what they're trying to articulate. And I think what the worrying yeah. thing might be because of that is that we refer to these people as trolls. And a lot of the time, because of the freedom they have to abuse, people are moving more towards being like, well, we need to control this. And there's to be identification on social media. And I think what may happen is that we'll see an equivalent of aristocracy in social media as well. I think all that is right. But I was like, here's an example, right? If I can remember it, it's a while since I've done the show. But towards the end of the show, uh, I show this example of a tweet I did that went viral, which was literally in 2017 or something, Sadiq Khan lit a menorah in Trafalgar Square. Uh, and there are pictures of lots of Muslims and Jews all celebrating or whatever. And I 
tweeted that, and it's not a funny tweet. I just said, multiculturalism, despite all you may have heard, is mainly fucking great. And actually, it was retweeted by J.K. Rowling, which is why it then got like millions and millions of, of like likes or whatever. But then, as ever, like it's a physics law with Twitter, the more yeah. likes and retweets you get, the more hate you get. So suddenly, I got all this hate from the right, and I show some of these, and they're so extreme. They're so extreme, right? And one one of them, one one thing I'm interested in is the, is the way in which they're extreme. So one of them says something like, uh, um, you know. When the sh- when when this finally gets to the boil, this traitor will be will be destroyed and executed. Yeah, where have you heard that before? Square. And I'm thinking, right, this person, he's never well. I, I think no. he's never properly, I think, written anything before. So he yeah. th- he has to write like fucking Charles Dickens writing a tale of two cities because he thinks that's what grandiose important writing is. But also, it's this, it's the disposition of these people. This is this is the peasantry. That's how it, excuse me, because you think about it, we will all read and we'll reflect on, you know, historic um, punitive systems in our society where, like, you'd be hung and drawn and quartered before a crowd. And we'd all be like, who the fuck would leave their house to go and watch someone have their entrails pulled out and drawn by a horse? These are the people. This is why they have the same kind of speech patterns. We will take the traitor and hang him from the highest lamppost on Oxford Street. What? Like... (laughs) Because it's toothless peasants. When we will pelt him with rotten bread and fruit for forging the nails that nailed Jesus Christ to the cross as a liberal Leninist. But the thing about it all to me, it it just to weigh in with a a little thought, is that one of the elements that's at play is is individualism, which across the second half of the 20th century, we defined ourselves by our car and our clothes and our you know these were the things that you used to uh, you know when we were kids right you would use that to identify the toys you had uh, this is what makes me an individual and 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 now you know this is a brilliant way for everyone to make themselves an individual oh look at the thing that i've written and i'm the only person that's written this and it's and it's in my word it's the idea that somehow that gives your life meaning and the reality is it doesn't (laughs) it just doesn't i mean obviously as creative or artists you have other outlets which give you know which you can provide you a certain level of personal fulfillment or the fact of how you imprint on other human beings whereas a lot of people like this like you said because they've been weaned on this individualism now find a sense of ennui where it's like actually yeah. these things don't give me any credence or any relevance because we live in an era whereby anybody can purchase any kind of right. material indicators of successful status whereas being able to participate and talk to david Badil, whereas normally i think i'd be ignored if i approached him this I can re- I can re- I can reclaim some self esteem because this democracy allows me for make sure that David sees my pitchfork and my torch. You know I don't think anything's changed. That if you stare into the abyss, it will stare back into you. And there's and you know with a lot of hecklers and stuff as well, yeah. as I'm sure you've experienced as well. If you probe them for long enough, you see what's really behind the heckle. If you probe it for long enough, and if, like I said, if you keep it open ended enough and give yeah. that threads for long enough, that heckler will, especially malicious hecklers will always eventually hang themselves because you'll see what's behind it because I think we both know after enough experience, most malicious hecklers do uh, want to be you on stage in the same way that, like, you know, most of your music critics are yeah. people that wanted to be rock stars themselves or a lot of sports pundits are jealous of, of seeing, you know, and you mix that with toxic masculinity as well, whereby people find the idea of comedy and the freeness, like you said, and the autonomy of being able to be who you are and say what you want is uh, intimidating. And we live in a world because of individualism, as you mentioned, Howard, I think, whereby 
when you see a picture of a beautiful girl or a beautiful woman, most people don't look at that picture and think, oh, that woman's beautiful. I like feeling beautiful. Things are beautiful. It's, she's beautiful. Unlike you, you ugly fuck. Why can't you look like this? Have you bought this? Then if you bought it, maybe it would be so fucking ugly, ugly. Look how good looking she is. Unlike your ugly ass, you need to go and buy this. Shame and comparison have always been big uh, catalysts yeah. for motivating, uh, you know, purchases of things people don't need. Never heard it before. My daughter said, no, haven't you heard that before? Lots of people say, but someone yeah. on the radio yesterday said, comparison is the thief of joy. And uh, that is definitely true internally, but it's also true, obviously, socially and politically, because it creates a situation in which, as you say, a sense of anxiety about my own, one's own comparison, one's own status immediately makes you think, I must either buy this in order to recompense myself, or I must get angry. Yeah, and if I, and if I, if I attack this phenomenon, which causes me to reflect on my own insecurity or ennui or lack of fulfilment, then at least if I diminish this, because it's much easier, if you look at the leverage of status of power, I can either work to try and elevate my platform, but if I just destroy this one, it's much easier. That's right. I also think what you said was true about investigating the malicious heckle. I've often found, I found that sometimes on stage, and I found it sometimes if I could be bothered on social media. Often I just do a put down and then I block them or whatever, but sometimes I think earlier on I might talk to them a bit longer. And then what you realise is, of course, that the anger yes. and the rage comes from an initial lack of empathy. So what they don't imagine when they say the furious thing is that they will get a response, not just they won't get a response, but they don't imagine that the person that they're shouting at, whether it be me or anyone else, is a real person who might respond to that in a particular way. Once you demonstrate that and you're in a dialogue with them, then they sort of back down because they yeah. have to, because they think, oh, I was just shouting into exactly. a void. It turns out to be a human fucking being. Now I don't really know what to say. Exactly. Because once that happens, then they're forced to confront their own humanity as well. And it's a question of, like, if your mother was to hear the things you say on the internet. Because like, I've had a lot of uh, teenage uh, trolls, like, on Instagram, which is obviously a demographic which is a bit younger than Twitter. And if they get really, really abusive, I would say, may I speak to your pastor or mother about what you and what they think about it? Or do your parents know that you have an Instagram and this is the kind of thing that you're saying? And you see... The to and the, cho the change in tone is That's insane. Hilarious. When you're like, I would like to meet your pastor and we can read through this transcript. I'm a grown man. And I'm happy. I, I, I'm fully responsible for what I say. <laughs> what will your mother say if she hears this kind of thing that you're saying when you should be working? It's a, to it's a really good way, actually, as you say, of That's reflecting exactly, back yeah. to them and that, and that, who they are. And that's what social media is. It's holding a mirror up of humanity. And some people become very, uh, that, that can make human beings very uncomfortable, especially where we don't any have a lot of prior training in terms of dealing with reflection and having to confront stuff. So even like a lot yeah. of the racial tensions or the existential crises you're seeing amongst like the cisgender, heterosexual white man is not because they are dealing with more abuse than they've ever dealt with before. It's just they've never seen it articulated because if we're able to subsist on mainstream media outlets, for you to be an average Anglo-Saxon Gentile, you ambient advertising suggests that you are benevolent. If you are to travel everywhere you land, everyone speaks the same language that you do. So the old suggestion that's been there is that your presence has always been benevolent. Social media has provided a democracy of a narrative where everyone's like, well, actually, no, there are these phenomena like rape culture. And like I said, because now people have attached themselves to an identity, which now also includes this, they become so defensive now that, again, most people are just trying to work out who they are on the internet. Yeah. And then what's even weirder is the phenomenon of now people taking their internet persona and hoping for that to migrate into real life when we're st where whereas our human and social evolution is happening at a much slower rate than online. For comics, the future is bright, and I think for most artists, it's it's, it's more the um, more the media than the medium you have to worry about.
Can I ask a specific question before we go? Yeah. Which is, you mentioned Chris Rock's Bigger and Blacker. Uh, is that Does he do the dentist joke in that one? That is like literally one of my favourite jokes ever. The Bigger and Blacker was when he did the uh, bit on the school shooters on Columbine, and he also did the uh, oh, yeah. whole thing on Crackers. I met him. Can I tell you something about him? Yeah. Okay, so I met him once. We should go out on a, on a story about a comedian. So uh, I, I um, he was doing Ham, Hammersmith? Yeah, I think it was Hammersmith. Uh, and I went to see it, and I met him afterwards. He was a very nice bloke, right? But he did this bit, which you may know. I don't know if it's been on any of his videos. I just saw him doing do it live. Uh, about how sometimes abusing someone, like shouting at them and being really angry with them, is okay, I remember it, depending yeah. on the yeah. context. And this is the example he gave. He said, he said that if you get, uh, like, crashed into uh, really badly in a stupid accident <laughs> by someone with one leg, then it's okay to yeah. give them a hard time for having one leg. You can start <laughs> saying, you stupid, <laughs> one-legged fucker, blah, 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 right? So it goes well, right? But I, but at the time, oh, Heather Mills oh, right, no. was just with Paul McCartney, and people really didn't like her. And I said to Chris, <sighs> right, get this, right? I said to Chris, that's really funny. Just as a British person, I think it would get a really big laugh if after you've done the whole thing about shouting at this one-legged woman, you just go, Heather, right? And here's what happened. He looked at me and he said, what does that mean? And I'm like, because I thought he would have heard of it. I said, well, you know Heather Mills? He went, yeah. And I said, well, you know, people don't really like it. And it got really embarrassing. It got really embarrassing. And I was like, this telling me what to do? But hang on, here's the kicker, right? So I was embarrassed. I thought, I've told, I've, he, like, I really think he's a brilliant, brilliant comedian. I've told one of my favourite comedians a joke. It hasn't worked. What a twat. So the next day, I tell this story, full of self-humiliation and self-loathing, to Frank Skinner, right? He says... Yeah. I went to see him last night. I think he was He's doing it. Because I went as well. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. So he said, I said, he's doing it. He said, yeah, he did it. He said, Heather, it got a big laugh. And then he says, some yeah. British guy I told me to say that. I, I said, no, I, I think it was. <laughs> Yeah, I was there. You were there. I was there when he said it. I don't believe this. I don't believe it. Well, I'm very proud that he said it, even though when I was actually with him, I just jokes and stuff. Like, no, it's a really good one, but yeah. Amazing. This has been an amazing episode, and our viewers, our listeners can surely understand why we dealt with just one question today rather than our normal format, because it was uh, something so worth diving into like that. Right, Dane? Absolutely. The epitome of very special guests on the podcast. Uh, David Badil, thank you so much. Uh, for myself, uh, this has been amazing and a milestone in my career. Thank you um, very much, Dane. You thank know, you. I, I really enjoyed it. I, I imagine I will be trolled. I will be trolled for not asking you if it's going to come home <laughs> next time. But uh, you'll have to be back yeah. on the show again. But um, where can our listeners uh, find you and find your previous works and upcoming works? I might be doing the vaudeville with my show Trolls Not the Dolls uh, in November, depending on basically how the R rating goes over the next week. Fucking hell, we have to think about that. Fingers crossed. Uh, I'm supposedly, <laughs> on my tour, which has been put off for a year, is happening supposedly next year, and uh, you can still buy some tickets for that. Uh, and uh, in terms of what we said earlier about kids' books, I've got a new kids' book out called Future Friend, which uh, is about a friend who appears from the future because it does what it says on the tin, that book. Uh, and uh, yeah, then that's basically enough to be going on with, I think. Amazing. And occasionally writing <laughs> yeah. I'll do that as a side <laughs> thing, yeah. yeah. No, brilliant. Thank you very much and thank you, How Is. 
How are? He's How a, are yeah, thank you. It's been a, yeah. it's been a joy. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, what a dream come true to sign me on this podcast. Call me that. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste. For more from Dane, go to danebaptiste.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTeast. Our guest was David Badil. You can follow David on Twitter at Badil. The show was produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Decode. You can follow D on Twitter and Instagram at Official Decode. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly and the Acast team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.